It was a smooth flight. By summer 2003, massive and ongoing troop movements had outstripped the Pentagon's ability to fly U.S. service members to Iraq using only military aircraft. Lucrative contracts were awarded for commercial and charter airlines to fill the gap. Soon, Boeing 757s helped transport battalions of Marines and soldiers to Kuwait. From there, the Pentagon's workhorse C-130, flown by uniformed pilots, many National Guard units in effect federalized, made the final corkscrew landing into Baghdad. I was 31 and headed to Iraq, to war for the first time, not as a soldier but on behalf of the State Department. I had left the U.S. mission to the United Nations in New York after diplomacy there failed by design. The unnecessary war a commander-in-chief and the neoconservatives in Washington wanted, Iraqis got and would keep getting for years to come. So did all of us who went over there year after year after year. Hearing that I worked for the State Department, the pilot guiding our flight invited me into the back part of the cockpit to observe our descent into the Middle East. The deserts below were dark, as was the sky. I did not see any stars. It was as if we were flying into a void. Somewhere above us was Mars, the red planet named, of course, after the Roman god of war. Compact, calm, and yet talkative, the pilot noted he was nearing retirement but had volunteered for these special flights because he considered it to be an honor to fly troops to their last point before continuing into Baghdad, into the war. He said he was certain the U.S. needed to invade Iraq. The pilot believed Saddam Hussein was a threat and had hidden weapons of mass destruction. Toward the end of our time in the air, with the co-pilot now flying the plane, the chief pilot gave me one of his business cards, embossed with his special designation as American Airlines senior pilot. I had no idea airlines had number one pilots rank ordered in seniority, but what an American notion, top dogs even in commercial fleets. With my first of two wars just beginning, it felt like an adventure. I was, oddly enough, in retrospect, excited. I was also naive. As I left the cockpit, he said he wanted to land in Baghdad one day, at Saddam's old airport, before any other commercial U.S. pilot, once civilian flights were cleared to fly beyond Kuwaiti skies. We are American Airlines. We should be the first. I kept to myself that I doubted any passengers would be collecting frequent flyer miles on their way to and from Iraq anytime soon. A few days later, I arrived in Baghdad from Kuwait via a sweltering C-130, then by armored convoy into the center of Iraq's now-occupied capital city. I suddenly represented the occupying power in the middle of Mesopotamia. I did not feel victorious, but I knew I wanted to show a less ugly or arrogant America, the kind that had lectured world leaders in the run-up to the war. Few civilians had yet arrived in Iraq to staff the U.S.-led CPA, Coalition Provisional Authority. Part of the first wave in, and probably the most anti-Iraq war member of the group, I recognized in myself a degree of self-congratulatory pride in that fact, being against the war but volunteering for it. This stand had cachet tied to it, but also conviction. I was not the kind to complain about Iraq in another march of folly fashion. That self-righteous phase of mine lasted about a week among friends, over many cups of coffee and a few beers. It got old fast, and they conveyed as much. Better to be in Baghdad among Iraqis who could tell me what they thought, not what I might think they thought from thousands of safe miles away. 
Everything about the place, the Coalition for Regional Authority, indeed felt provisional. Only about 50 State Department personnel had been assigned to help oversee Iraq's occupation, and none of us had an at-war roadmap handy. We were hugely outnumbered. Based on sheer size, the U.S. military basically ran the country despite Ambassador L. Paul Bremer III's being named by President George W. Bush as top envoy or Iraq's administrator. With such an anodyne-sounding title, he kept his pinstriped, dark-suit attire, often adorned with red ties and white handkerchief. But Bremer also incorporated a different fashion protocol, soon mimicked by his inner circle. Instead of State Department wingtips, he wore sand-colored canvas military boots. Granted, in a war zone, this sartorial combination looked odd, yet seemed practical. It did not come across that way, however, to Iraqis, to them— Boots were only made for stomping, not liberating. We all were in way over our heads from the very beginning, a gut truth I felt from day one lasting all the way until I departed years later. All of us confronted the same dilemma. No matter what the reasons or the partisan insider connections that had brought us to Iraq as imperialists exported from America, we were linked by ignorance, unrealistic expectations, earnest idealism in some, and growing dangers, a mission impossible.